This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of All Possibilities is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. This episode is hosted by Jessica Brodkin, who you may remember from episode number 11. She's filling in as a guest host for All Possibilities as I take care of my newborn baby. Enjoy the show! Imagine hating your job. Very easy for most of us. Today, you'll meet a man who decided enough was enough and walked away from a prestigious corporate law firm to then become a Vedic meditation teacher, dedicating his life to shepherding others to live their best life. Let's rock and roll. Welcome to the All Possibilities Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Chan, intuitive life purpose coach and founder of Being My Purpose. Together, let's embark on a discovery of all possibilities. Ben, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you've had already three careers, right? We're on our third iteration of your career. I'm in my third career. (laughs) And your career now is uh, kind of a more spiritual. You're a Vedic. Why don't you tell people what you do now? So I really do three things now. Um, For the last five years, I've been teaching something called Vedic meditation, which I still teach primarily. But I also work with individuals, mostly one-on-one, doing a different methodology called breath work. Uh Um, And I also work with individuals doing personal coaching. Oh, okay. So are you like a life coach or executive coach? So with personal coaching, I, I take an approach where we really try to consciously design more happiness and more fulfillment in our everyday experience. So we we really look at life in terms of what we spend our time doing, career, relationships, health, well-being, spirituality, and very importantly, recreation. Okay, got you. So looking at those different areas and seeing what can we change and then strategically planning how we can go about implementing those changes so you don't yell at people for not completing their to-do list no not at all that's not my style it's never been my style no um my my second career as an answer your emails (laughs) (laughs) um you know i was a corporate lawyer which is really good for me because i'm just very non-confrontational by nature so so you were a litigator i wasn't the litigator as a corporate lawyer yeah. yeah you were a corporate lawyer and um how long did you do that before it ate your soul? Did it eat your soul? I assume so. Yeah, it ate it up pretty quickly. <laughs> I um, I practiced law for about four years. Okay. What happened to you during that those four years? Did you have like a breakdown and you were like, I can't do this anymore? Because a lot of lawyers feel that way and they just stay in law. Yeah, so my so- breakdown came really in the first two weeks of law school. <laughs> so way before I even graduated, got through it all, started, you know, studied and, and took and, and thank goodness, passed the bar exam and started practicing laws. It was right in the beginning and it was a major red flag. And it's something that I wish I actually took a little bit more seriously. But um, my, my whole life experience really 
up until I was 28 years old was was filled with lots of anxiety and depression. And uh, it was fairly well managed for most of that time, but it really escalated when I got into law school. In the first two weeks of law school, I started having panic attacks, which is something that I hadn't had since I was a little boy. So that was a major, major red flag to my legal career. Uh, and something something I did take seriously, but but should have looked at more objectively and and, and maybe at that time saw, you know what, this is probably not gonna be for me. Mm. Um but uh but I persevered, I powered through and and got through law school and passed the bar exam and got a what most people would consider a really fantastic job. Uh, at a prestigious law firm, you know, big international firm with lots of offices all around the world that was doing something um, that most people would view as as something important and substantial uh, and successful, right. but didn't feel that way at all. Do you think your panic attack, um, so did you continue to have panic attacks in law school? Yes. <laughs> So they started right in the beginning of, of law school. And um, and the reason why was really the environment. I had never been exposed to that type of educational environment. The way they teach most first-year law classes is in big lecture halls. You're in the yeah. room with you know upwards of 50 people at least, sometimes you know 100 people in a section depending on the size of the law right. school. And the way they teach these first – classes is through the Socratic method. So you right. show up and you were to read, you know, a dozen cases on a certain rule or theme of law. And the teacher there has a seating chart where everybody's sitting. And either at random, either in a particular order, however they'd want to do it, typically it was random. They would just ask someone at the beginning of class, let's go through these cases together. So it wasn't a lecture question answer the way most college courses and even high school courses are taught. Uh, it was really, you know, you were on the spot presenting the material to the room full of people having to answer the teacher's questions. Right. Um, I saw Legally Blonde, so I really know what went on, goes on in law school. Yeah, and that, that absolutely terrified me. Um, so much so that I started to get insanely anxious about going to class because I didn't want to be called on. I wasn't a public speaker. Um, I wasn't comfortable in that situation. And what would happen was I would have these anxiety attacks before class and, you know, way before class, like, you know, the night before going to sleep, I'd be up all night worried about going to class the next day, the next day. And I was an evening student my first year in law school. So I had a all day to get anxious before I got to class at night. And I'd be sitting in the library trying to prepare for class, but I'd be so anxious that I'd see, you know, I'd try to reread the same paragraph over and over again. It was almost as if I didn't know how to read. I was so anxious that nothing would register. And I don't know how you got through law school and got this firm with that anxiety. Uh, I'll you? tell you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, Lots of different types of prescription medication. Okay. Um, Adderall? Yes. So so I I up until that point had never been medicated for anxiety, depression, Mm -hmm. insomnia, for better or for worse. I think I think, you know, had I been born a year or two later, that's when that's when pediatricians started medicating children a little bit more than they did at my age. 
And so I'd never been medicated as a child. I was in therapy as a child for anxiety and depression. Uh, I have very wonderful memories of that, by the way. Uh, of it anxiety? Was, no. Of no, therapy. <laughs> therapy, yeah. <laughs> Not even, um, I it love was, being... De- no. <laughs> it, it was great. I used to go to this therapist's office on 12th Street off of 5th Avenue. And I grew up here in New York City. And this woman was a little older than my mother. And I showed up. And she had all these different types of games and toys and everything. And she just said, what do you want to do? And I would probably play shoots and ladders, you know, every other session, if not every session, we played like shoots and ladders, connect Four, that sort of things, those games that I was into. She always let me win. And afterwards I always got pizza. So it was like something I looked forward to. <laughs> did, you, did it actually help you besides having like a fun play date with a woman? I assume it did. I don't remember what we discussed. I mean, I know based on what was going on in my life that she was asking me questions about school, about my parents, about my sister, all those things. You know, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? What happens in therapy as an adult? But it was that was the background. You know, for me, what was most important was winning the game, the Connect Four, whatever. I went to this kind of therapy now. you might ends be able. Pizza, you might be able to find somebody who shoots and ladders you. and ends with pizza. <laughs> um, but I don't remember it. I mean, that's what I remember. Those. The, that's my memory of therapy, and, and I. I believe it was effective because I didn't stay in therapy throughout my whole life. You know, it was, it was a couple of years in my early childhood. I think I was like six, seven, maybe eight years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I also went to a fairly progressive school down in, in Greenwich Village, a place called Village Community School, which I think is actually more progressive when I went there than it is now. Uh, we was called our teachers by our first names. We had no tests. We had no quizzes. We had no grades. There was nothing... Your childhood sounds amazing. And it was it was a very helpful place for me to be at the time. And then my family moved up to Westchester County when I was 12 years old. I went to a very, very conservative, competitive private school. And that was really that was kind of the next spike in my anxiety was was assimilating into that environment, you know, having to be evaluated constantly. Hours of homework tests and quizzes regularly, uh, dress code, very formal, that sort of thing. It was, it was totally bizarre to me. Um, and I struggled for the first few years through that, but that was actually quite helpful for me to get through all of that. It made me a really good student, um, gave me the work ethic that I have now. And, and so when I got out of high school, college and, and graduate school were actually quite manageable for me just because I'd worked so hard in high school. I mean, literally to this day, my AP bio class that I took my senior year of high school is the hardest class I've ever taken in my life. I've never started harder, you know, bar exam, forget it. That AP bio class was the hardest. This woman, Mrs. Smith at uh, Rye Country Day School really kind of put us through the ringer. (laughs) Everybody who took her AP bio class got fives on the exam, which is the highest grade you can get on an AP exam. Everybody, like you didn't, you either drop the class and you didn't take it, or uh, if you took it, you got a five because she just, so, I mean, it was, it was, it was college level biology in high school. So you had anxiety, you managed it as a kid, managed your it parents kid. managed it as a kid. What, um, sort of, you had a breakdown in law school, you powered through, right? And but you also were like a soul cycle instructor for four, how did you go from all this like prep school to yeah. fitness instructor? Did so, your parents like go bananas on you? No, I have wonderful parents who, who's okay. always been very supportive. Law school was my own idea. Really? Um I'll tell you how it came about. So so 
all my life, really since I was an early child, I was I was really into sports and athletics, and that was my thing, and that was that was really my Sporty my spice. outlet. Yeah, I I was obsessed as a kid with with ice hockey, and um, I started I started ice skating probably when I was like seven, and then started playing ice hockey at nine years old here in New York city. And there wasn't a lot of ice hockey back then. So I used to, we lived in Manhattan. I used to go out to Queens and Brooklyn for practice and then played on all these travel teams, went all over, uh, New York state, Connecticut, Philadelphia, you know, Pennsylvania, that sort of place, um, you know, up to Massachusetts for games. And, uh, that drove my parents crazy, by the way, all that driving all weekend long, (laughs) (laughs) leaving at like four or five o'clock in the morning to, you know, get to a hockey rink with a bunch of kids in the backseat sleeping. Um, Thank you, mom and dad, for doing that. Oh my god! <laughs> but as a as a high school athlete, um, you know, it got more competitive, and I suffered from some injuries. And uh, because of that, I ended up in the athletic trainer's room, and I formed this great bond with with the athletic trainer at my school, a guy by the name of Steve Norman, who was really one of my first great mentors. And uh, I wanted to study athletic training and get into sports medicine. And uh, I went to Ithaca College for my first year. Didn't like Ithaca. Didn't like being in the snow for, you know, seven months. <laughs> so I transferred to Boston University, which also had a lot of snow. Um, but I studied athletic training. And, and and in that time, I also started lifting weights in high school, got into that sort of thing. Um, and, and that, that was actually important for me because I'd always been very self-conscious about my appearance and how I looked. And when I started lifting weights at the end, you know, my sophomore, junior year of high school, I looked different. I felt different. I was a lot more confident and, and really liked being in the gym more so than actually playing and practicing my sports at the time. So I went into college studying athletic training, but but more with the idea that I'd be on the fitness side of things as a strength and conditioning coach, working with athletes, doing their doing their off the field, off the ice, whatever training their um, their physical preparation. And I went to graduate school with that idea, and I started to Wait, back. So up you just went to grad moment. school for. Athletic training, and then you went to law school? Yeah, so... Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So, yeah, I graduated from Boston University and went to Columbia up here in the city to Teachers College. I was a graduate assistant, so I was working in their sports medicine department, um, going to school. You know, I didn't make any money. They give you a very small stipend, a weekly stipend, but uh, they pay for your school, which is great. And I, I was only a GA there, graduate assistant there for a semester. I worked with the football team and I was studying human movement and exercise physiology at Teachers College up at Columbia. And I got offered a, what I perceived to be this amazing job at this fitness facility out in New Jersey that trained athletes. And and they were at the time the the place, the premier place for college football players to go to prepare for the NFL draft. And they train those guys. They train lots of pro athletes, some of the Giants, some of the Yankees, mm-hmm. um, people from mixed martial arts. That's actually how I got into what I do now for a sport. Brazilian jiu-jitsu was through that facility. I thought it was going to be this dream job. It ended up being a nightmare. I was only there for about four months because what? I wouldn't sign the employment contract. 
You just wouldn't sign the contract? No. I've signed so many sketchy contracts. You're better. I like your boundaries. Well, here's what happened. They handed me an employment contract. It was 30 pages long, uh -huh. and I hadn't gone to law school yet, so I didn't know how to read the thing. Right. Um, I'm reading this. I'm like, I don't know what this all means. I can't work here. I can't do this if I leave. And you know, all these non-compete clauses, and even the compensation model was was a little bit, um, or a lot unfair. And so, uh, my my parents had careers and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, I asked, you, yeah. I asked my mom, I said, Hey, uh, do you know anybody who can look at this contract for me? And she said, actually, I have an attorney who negotiates my employment contracts for the companies that I work for. I'll have him look at it. And this attorney came back to me and said, do not sign this contract as is, if this is what you want to do professionally, because if you leave here, you won't be able to work anywhere else for two years. What? Um, and they might not be able to enforce it, but if they put these things in, sometimes they try and, and that'll get you hung up. And, you know, this job isn't, I mean, it was, it was an entry level job. I wasn't making a lot of money at all. So, you know, to go to battle with somebody would, would have cost me half of my earnings to, to pay for all of that. So, um, that was really my first interaction with a lawyer right. <laughs> personally. And, um, and it was actually a positive interaction. I, 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 that was the first time I saw that, you know, a lawyer being an advocate and really helping a person through a difficult situation and avoiding what could be a very contentious experience. And uh, so I signed that employment contract and they were giving out these employment contracts to all the trainers that worked in the facility people had been there for years and years and they were just redoing these contracts and when i first landed there everybody said we're not going to sign this you know they're going to change it don't worry and so that's why i was there for so long you know most places if they hand you a contract right. and you say well i'm not going to sign this and you know here's my changes and they say no you know you're, you're not even there for a week or you don't even get there but right, because right. they were going through this with everybody um you know, I stayed for four months and then went on to another job that didn't work out. And that's when I decided to go to law school because I really just didn't know what I wanted to do and what I thought was going to be this wonderful career that I actually enjoyed. You know, I still very much um, am interested in exercise physiology, human movement, athletic training. That's still something that, that interests me and I, I still have a lot of enthusiasm for and something as a career that, uh, you know, looking in the rearview mirror, I, I, I regret not pursuing that a little bit further, but you regret not pursuing athleticism uh, training more. Yeah. The, the fitness stuff and the strength and conditioning stuff. I mean, you can still do that. Oh no, of course I could. I mean, um, <laughs> Of course I could, but Especially, just at the, but just at the time, I really I was having a tough time professionally, and that's why yeah. I thought, let me just go back to school. I was going to go to business school, law school. And, you were just trying to get out. Yeah, I was trying to get out, and it was it was an escape valve for me, and uh, put me in a place where you know I suffered from tremendous anxiety. <laughs> so, but it sounds like that anxiety has led you to where you are today in terms of Vedic meditation teacher. Absolutely. I would so have never learned like to meditate if I wasn't a stressed out attorney. That that wouldn't have came to be. Right. So I guess blessing in disguise. Absolutely. Coming up, we're going to hear Ben talk about Vedic meditation, breathwork, and his new studio that he's opened with his partner who was previously on the podcast. 
Do you have a story or a comment you'd like to share? I'd love to hear from you. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. You can also connect with me directly at my own website, beingmypurpose.com. Hello, world. I'm Michelle Parr. Hello, world. I'm Stacy Eagle. And welcome to Mom's, Mom's got, got This. We got this. Oh, we are so excited to host this show. We got this. We're going to have a show Monday through Thursday, and every day we're going to be talking to one amazing guest who also happens to be a mom, but every day we're going to be asking them about different parts of their life. What inspires them? What makes them happy? What makes them sad? What did they do before they made it? And most of all, their mom journey, because these women have really made it. They really have. And they're all moms. Which is, I think, amazing in itself. Like being a mom is already a full-time job. It's a full-time job. And there's highs and there's lows and we're busy and we're juggling. And these are all working moms. Mm-hmm. So we want to hear their stories. What inspires them? What gets them down? What are the products they use and the recipes to make life easy? What products do they like? What they don't like? <laughs> <laughs> and also, I'm so excited about this. Every episode, we're actually going to hear from you guys, the listeners, because we want to hear your mom's got this moment. We want to hear about why your mom. So we want you to join us Monday through Thursday every week. And don't forget to subscribe. So make sure you go to our website, momsgotthispodcast.com. And use our hashtag. Mom's got this. Premieres May 14th on Mouth Media Network and sponsored in part by luxury footwear brand Tamara Mellon. So, Ben, we mentioned earlier that if you had not gone to law school and had your anxiety breakdown, then you would not do what you do today as a Vedic meditation instructor, right? Absolutely. You're, You're totally correct. I... I was in a bad place when I was practicing law. And really, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I've been medicated now for about five years, been going to therapy for about the same time. And those things were tremendously helpful for me. They kept me functional. They got me through school. They got me to work every day. But I certainly wasn't happy. And I didn't feel good. And learning Vedic meditation to this day is the most important thing that I've ever done and transformed my entire experience. So previously we've had um, your partner on in your studio. The called Spring, the Spring Meditation. Yeah, Spring which meditation. is a studio right down the street from here on 6th Avenue between Spring and Dominic in Soho. And you guys just opened or? So Rick Little, who was on the podcast a few months ago, um, is one of my partners on the Spring. So it's mm-hmm. myself, Rick Little, and four other teachers. There's six of us all together. We all teach Vedic meditation. So it's a Vedic meditation studio. It's where anyone who wants to learn this particular technique of meditation can come and learn. And um, from what I understand, Vedic meditation is 20 minutes. It's, it's similar to TM, but slightly different, right? Yes. So the methodology and the knowledge all comes from the same place, but we are not associated or affiliated with the transcendental meditation organizations at all. And the way we teach this from what I've heard from people who've actually done both is quite different. Oh, it is. Okay, Um, great. That's good to know. And I don't, I don't know the particulars because I've never been to a TM center. I haven't, I haven't gone through their program but your program is it 20 minutes twice a day with a with a a mantra it's mantra based okay it's not mantra meditation the way most people know mantra meditation meaning it's not forced repetitions of a mantra the mantras that we use have no meaning associated with them they're sounds they're not words 
Um, and it's not based on focus or There's concentration. No There's no ohm. Uh, but you'll receive a, a particular no, mantra that's selected for the individual. So you learn a personalized sound. And Is it one sound? It's one it? sound. I mean, it depends on how you want to quantify sound. So some of them have uh, multiple sounds included uh-huh. in the one sound, like a word that has multiple syllables. Okay, We gotcha. will call that your sound, your mantra, uh-huh. which may have a few sounds in it, um, depending on, on which mantra category you happen to fall into. Okay. But... The the then, recommended program is 20 minutes twice a day. When I teach this, I emphasize that that's not an all or nothing proposition, meaning mm-hmm. if you don't do it 20 minutes twice a day, it's not going to work for you. It's It's somewhat proportional in how much you do it related to that recommended dose is what you get out of it. Um, and with with Vedic meditation, there are a number of preferences about how we practice it in terms of the timing of when we practice it. We like people to meditate in the morning before food, before caffeine. Those things are very stimulatory. And with Vedic meditation, the whole design of it is to de-excite the mind and the body, putting mm-hmm. the body into a deep state of rest, getting the mind to a very, very settled state automatically and spontaneously. And so when you have your breakfast and you're digesting, your body's very active. Right. When you take in your caffeine, that stimulates your nervous system. And with Vedic meditation, we're de-exciting the nervous system. Gotcha. So you want to do that first afternoon meditation sometime after lunch before dinner time, uh, 20 minutes. But all those things are preferences. It doesn't mean that if you meditate after breakfast and after a cup of coffee, it doesn't work. It'll still work. If you meditate late at night, it's still good to do. We prefer that you do it earlier. So a preference rather than the rule for all of that. So um, I understand that Vedic meditation is mostly done in groups. So you learn it in a group setting, but you practice it on your own. Right, right, right. And that's how it's very different from the breath work that I teach. Yeah, please tell me more about the breath work. So so with Vedic meditation, you're learning this particular technique, and you go through a four-day course. Each session lasts between an hour or two. And and most of that instruction, most people learn in a group setting when they learn Mm -hmm. Vedic meditation. And then once they take that course, they can go off and practice on their own, morning, evening. And it's really meant to be a daily hygienic experience. It's like brushing your teeth. Mm-hmm. Breath work is something that I first encountered shortly after I learned Vedic meditation. Um, and I actually learned it through the first breath work technique that I learned was actually through Vedic meditation. It's a pranayama technique, a yogic breathing technique that you would do prior to meditating. Mm. And I found that to be enjoyable and beneficial. Can you do some for us right now? So the breath work that we do before Vedic meditation is is a very common form of breath Mm work. Um, I didn't read this book personally, but if you read Hillary Clinton's book that came out last year, she credits this style of breathing to be very helpful for her during the campaign and post-campaign. It's alternate nostril breathing. Oh, yeah. So this is what we would do prior to meditating where you would use your thumb to block your right nostril Mm -hmm. and your middle finger to block your left nostril, tucking your index finger into your palm. And when you would do this, you start off by blocking your right nostril and exhaling fully out of your left nostril, 
holding that empty breath for a moment before inhaling, filling up. And and let me emphasize, by the way, when we do this style of breathing, it's diaphragmatic breathing. So we want to be breathing into the lower torso, into the belly. Mm -hmm. And people always, when they describe breathing into the belly, they think they're actually breathing air into their stomach. You're not. You're just filling up the lower part of your lungs using your diaphragm. Mm. So we want to emphasize that. And that's very important because when we breathe into the upper chest and into the shoulders, we're actually causing the nervous system to get into an excited sympathetic response, meaning a flight or flight response. So you Mm -hmm. don't want to breathe in the way that's going to cause you to be stressed or more stressed. You actually want to breathe in a way that causes you to be more relaxed and calm. And so when we do this breathing, again, we would start blocking the right nostril, taking an exhale out of the left nostril, holding that empty breath for a moment before inhaling, but using the diaphragm, breathing into the lower torso, holding that full breath for a moment, and then switching, blocking the left nostril, taking the exhale out of the right nostril to we're all the way empty, holding that empty breath for a moment, and then filling up again, breathing in, expanding through the diaphragm, and switching again, switching, and exhaling out the left. So the thing to remember about an alternate nostril breath is that you're always switching on a full lung. So that breathing technique was the first form of breath work that I ever encountered. Before that, no one ever told me to breathe in a certain way at all. Um, and it's something that I would do before meditation. I found it particularly helpful. It's something How I would do. How long do you do it for? Three to five minutes before you meditate. Very short. Yeah. And it's something that I would use outside the meditation too. When I was starting to feel acutely stressed, I would do three minutes of breathing like that. And it was like, a, it was like hitting the reset button. Um, so pranayama is, uh, comes from yoga, right? So does this breath work, um, this breath work comes from the yoga, yogic tradition as well? So that particular technique does. So breath work very much like meditation. When you, when you look at meditation, meditation, the word encompasses countless numbers of practices, all different techniques and methodology of, of meditation. Breathwork is like that word meditation. It encompasses any sort of breathing exercise or, or methodology. Gotcha. It, it's really all-inclusive. And so when I teach meditation, I teach a specific form of meditation called Vedic meditation. When I teach breathwork, I actually use a number of different methodologies that come from different places based on who I've trained with and who I've studied with. And how did you, because the breath work that I've personally done has comes mostly from Kundalini. So I've done like breath of fire, some pranayama, but mostly, Mm -hmm. mostly from the Kundalini background. So what background and how did you choose which breath work to teach? Because it's, it's a pretty large, uh, uh, I mean, you know, pretty large library or body of breath work out there. It came from my own personal experience, what I was, what I was exposed to, what I found beneficial, and then who I decided to train with Hmm. and what methodologies they employed. Okay. So why did you, who did you train with and why did you choose these people? So I trained with a woman by the name of Dr. Blisa Veronich, um, who I actually found through Brazilian jiu-jitsu. She had worked with a number of athletes that I knew, and particularly one of the guys that I had trained with for a short amount of time, uh, a guy by the name of Henry Aikens. And she would do these little seminars and workshops in jiu-jitsu schools, mm-hmm. and she had been written up in jiu-jitsu magazines and things like that. So I I'd sought her out. Uh, I watched a couple of her videos. Uh, she did an amazing TED Talk. She has a great book out. Well, what's and her book? Her book is called Breathe. 
Okay. Easy to remember. Easy to remember. And it, her book really walks you through her methodology. And, and what she does is, is she looks at your breathing style and assesses dysfunction and provides corrective exercise to help people really learn how to breathe in the way that their bodies were set up to breathe. Mm. So in her breathing, breathing techniques, are they from like the Vedic tradition? Like, I mean, Indian by Vedic, I mean, Indian tradition. So her, her, her methodology comes from a number of places. Mm -hmm. Some of it comes from those yogic practices, mm -hmm. pranayam, um, and, and, and yogic philosophy. Uh, it also comes from martial arts. It also comes from free diving and singing. Um, also lots of things. Lots of things. And she's really, she's gone through what's out there and has, has cognized her methodology. Mm. And, and most of what it is, is, is relearning how to breathe correctly. Gotcha. We're all set up by way of having a diaphragm where it is in the human body and by the way we, you know, our skeletal structure is that we, we're meant to breathe in a certain way, but most people don't. Mm -hmm. And that causes massive dysfunction. Gotcha. Coming up, you're going to hear how Ben exactly transitioned from corporate lawyer to Vedic teacher and what words of wisdom he has to impart for us. The superior audio quality on Mouth Media Network is powered by Sennheiser. And as a listener, you can receive a 25% discount on virtually any headphone, microphone, and other high-quality audio product available to purchase directly on the Sennheiser website. Just visit Sennheiser.com and enter the code MOUTHMEDIASEN, that's MOUTHMEDIA, S-E-N-N, at checkout. We talked a lot about your background. We talked about breath work and Vedic meditation. I would love to know what was that moment as a corporate lawyer? Because a lot of corporate lawyers are unhappy people. What was that moment that made you be like, ah, I need to switch my life and this is the direction it's going to go? So th the moment is quite vivid to me. Um, I... I worked in what's called investment management. So my clients as a lawyer were mutual funds, exchange trade funds, unit investment trusts, these pooled investment products. And I started practicing law in 2008, which was not a particularly good time no, no, no. to be Big involved crash. in any of that. Mm -hmm. And so my first year practicing law was was incredibly stressful just because I showed up every, every day not you know unaware of whether or not I still had a job. Gotcha. They were laying people off constantly. And this wasn't only happening at my law firm. This was happening everywhere. So right. I didn't want to join this ever-growing pool of highly qualified lawyers who are unemployed and there were no positions for. And that's that's really what made my anxiety kind of skyrocket. And I learned Vedic meditation and then that all changed quite rapidly. But my second year practicing law, I was I was – mostly working for one client. I was basically an in-house counsel working through a law firm. So I, 90% of the work I did my first year was all for one client. And then in my second year, I got put on a number of other projects, but I didn't get taken off of my main client. So I already had a 50, 60 hour work week that was dedicated to one client. And now I got added on to a bunch of other things. So I remember 
it was in 2009. It was my second year. And I worked every day of the entire summer. I remember Memorial Day weekend. I was in the office every day, mm-hmm. all through the rest of May, June, July, August, in the office every single day. My work weeks were 80, 90 plus hours. And it was the end of August. And a friend of mine who I actually met studying for the bar exam had this this beach house that he rented with a bunch of other people out in Montauk, Long Island. And he had been asking me week after week, do you want to come out? Do you want to come out? And I said, no, I have to work. I have to work. I'm sorry. You know, I had my office tan that summer. I was pale white. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't see the light of day the entire summer. And finally, he said to me at the end of August, he said, this is our last weekend in this house. We've had the greatest time. I'd love for you to come out. He said, I'm taking the entire week off. I'm going to be out there all week long. Do you want to come out? And I said, yeah. Let me see if I could get a little time off. I've been I've been working my ass off all right. summer long. And so I, I talked to my group and I said, I'd like to take Thursday and Friday off. And everyone was like, yeah, fine, no problem. I get out there Thursday morning, spend the day at the beach. Nice. It's the first time I've been outside all summer long. Beautiful day in the ocean for the first time all summer. And again, this is like the last weekend mm-hmm. of August. We cooked this amazing meal. We had a really fun time that night. We did a little bonfire on the beach. It was like the highlight of my year up until that point. Friday morning, I wake up and my BlackBerry was full of emails. And my boss said, hey, uh, you know, I need this thing back by Monday. And it was it was a project that I was working on that I'd set up with the other attorneys. to. They were supposed to take care of it. They knew I was going away. And my boss said, you know, this needs to be done by Monday. And I, you know, and I wrote them back. I said, I have no internet connection. I don't have a computer with me. And he said, I don't care where you are or what you're doing. It needs to get done. And I got on the phone with a couple of people that I worked with. And I realized that, you know what, if if I'm out here, this is going to be a big problem. And I told my friend, I go, I got to go back in. And I mean, this is Friday morning. I'd been there for less than 24 hours. And I was back on a three-hour jitney back to the city to get back into the office that day. And that jitney ride, I was fuming. I was just so upset because, you know, I, I really, in months and months and months, I didn't have a day to myself. And, and this was the first day. And it was that jitney ride where I was like, this is not the rest of my life. I can't do this. This is not what I want my life to be. That was my breaking point. I mean, Montauk is pretty nice. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful weekend. I mean, the whole thing was was amazing. And I didn't quit then. Right. I mean, I didn't leave for another two years. But it was that moment that I decided this wasn't going to be the rest of my life. But again, if you if you we already discussed, I mean, I already had another career, which I thought was going to be what I was going to be doing, really my purpose. And now I'm a lawyer and I don't know what I'm going to do. And I thought, you know, what am I going to do? And that's when I decided to get some help with it. And I started working with a guy who, when I refer to him, I like to say that I blame him for most of the happiness that I have in my life. That's Uh, nice. He's Everyone a wonderful, must know who this guy yeah, is. Yeah, his name is Bruce Herman. Um, Bruce I, Herman. I can't tell you how much love I have for this man. He's a, he's a career consultant. I worked with Bruce for a, 
the next like year and a half. I mean, this is I so. Who working. is Bruce Herman? What does he do? So he's a career consultant. He works with people in different ways. He works with people who are like me, who didn't know what they wanted to do. They had different experiences and different types of careers. They don't know what's next, and Bruce helps you figure out what's next. He also works with people who like what they're doing, but they just want to do a better job with it. I wasn't in that category. I didn't like what I was doing. Um, I mean, if you're a corporate lawyer and you can't enjoy the Schmamptons for more than 24 hours, <laughs> it's really not worth it. Yeah, it, it wasn't for me. Um, and, and what Bruce and I did was we went through a very thorough process to to do what I consider two things. It's really kind of back-end engineering what fulfilling work would be. The mm -hmm. first thing that we did was identify the skills that I had or the skills that I wanted that I would enjoy using. I was really good at writing prospectus materials for unit investment trust. I didn't enjoy doing that for a minute. Mm -hmm. I don't miss that at all. You know, there's not a yeah. day goes by where I'm like, oh, I got to get back in How front of How did you find Bruce Herman? My mother was working with him. Man, your mom is like a hero. Yeah, you should have her on the she's podcast. A, she's the hero. <laughs> All right. Um, I love your my mom. mom was working with Bruce, and that's when I started working with Bruce. And really, what came out of that first part of, of identifying skills was teaching. Teaching was the thing that I had some aptitude at. And I had a little bit of direct teaching experience, but really it was from looking at other experiences that weren't work-related at all. It's like when I get into something, I really like to educate people about it. So one thing that is a general central theme is, um, is that you're a teacher and you're an educator from your athletic time as an athlete, or I mean, you're still an athlete, but as an athletic instructor to Vedic, to breathwork, to that's, that's a beautiful theme to have. So sorry. Yeah, and I and I understood that through working with Bruce. I mean, mm. that's not something that came to me through my careers or through my experiences. It was really exposed through doing the work with Bruce to identify that as the main skill that I had mm -hmm. that I enjoyed using. You know, when I'm enthusiastic about something, I want to tell somebody about it. I want to tell them about it in a way that they may become very enthusiastic about it. And so, you know, I would have been a, t I wouldn't have been a terrible high school math teacher, but I wouldn't have enjoyed teaching high school math. And, and the reason for that is, you know, personally, I didn't value my math classes very much in mm -hmm. high school. And so I want to educate somebody and teach somebody, whether it be a skill or, or whether it be, you know, in personal coaching, doing some of the same similar work that I did with Bruce, but in, in that area of career, but in other areas as well, um, but it, it needs to be something that I'm enthusiastic about. And some and the person in the room with me who's learning from me, for it to be a fulfilling experience for me, they need to be enthusiastic about it too. And so, you know, Vedic meditation sets that up and breathwork sets that up and personal coaching sets that all up very easily. Someone who's coming to, to work with me, they want to be there. No one comes by force. <laughs> right, 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 right. And the other thing is that the central theme between all of that and, of, of course, the athleticism is this is all lifestyle in a way that really affects people's happiness. I agree. And and this is what, you know, this is part of why the subject matter of what I teach. Um, these, these particular practices were and experiences were impactful for me. 
And most of the people who work with me tend to relate to my experience. Most of the people I work with are young professionals who face a very high level of demand, who have, who have gotten ever increasingly overwhelmed by the whole thing mm-hmm. and are looking for specific tools to help them feel better. And right. these are the tools that I provide. So through all of your teaching and learning, what kind of... If you could summarize, like, what are your, like, almost like talking points that you would like people to walk away with? So one of the most important things that I could ever convey to somebody is that to have a fulfilling experience, we need to be doing things that we want to be doing. And that's an important thing. Mm. You know, when I looked at one of the hard, one of the reasons why it took me two years to leave my law firm was I felt like that's what I should be doing, not what I wanted to be doing. So there's a gap between desire and um, duty or, or feel or not duty, but it's more of a social hypnosis. You know, you go to school for a particular thing, you get an entry-level job, you excel at that entry-level job, now you're mid-level or senior or whatever it is, and you have all these years of education, you have all these years of experience, and on paper, that's what you should be doing. But if you don't enjoy it, then that's a problem. You can't live your life for the moments you have outside of work. And if you're miserable at work, or you're miserable in relationship, or you're not taking care of yourself, and you're not doing things that you find enjoyable, you're not going to be happy. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way at all. So we need to consciously design these experiences to be more fulfilling, to bring about more happiness. And the more that we can do that in all of those different aspects of life, the happier that we're going to be. I think a lot of people don't believe that they can be happy or don't feel like they deserve to be happy. Do you find that? I do. I think the I think the deserving power isn't there for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I, agree. I don't think it's I think it's a mental experience. I think that's the way they're thinking about it. But I actually don't think it's derived in their intellect. I think it's actually their physical body. When we get stressed and overwhelmed, we get into this fight or flight response. You know, the sympathetic nervous system's kicking in, and uh, and we feel completely overwhelmed. And all we're trying to do is survive, and we don't see all those other options. And that's why, with Vedic meditation and breath work, we clear out the nervous system of all of those accumulated stresses. And now you actually have the ability to make some changes and make some difficult decisions and and have some of that fearlessness that you need to move on from things that you know, but you know that they don't make you happy. Right. I also think that a lot of it is programming. So I think some of it is from the physical body, but like that's the world and, you know, but some of it is also like energetic programming uh, family belief systems that get passed down that people don't even realize it, right? Like kids are sponges. I mean, you have a two-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. They absorb the the beliefs of and the patterns of the parents. Absolutely. So we have the hardware. We have the physical body, your physiology, that's loaded up with all of your accumulated right. stress. And then we have the software, which is your intellect, your mind. And that's where that programming comes in. And that's why, you know, some people... Uh, you know, mom and dad were lawyers and you went to law school because that's what mom and dad did and that's what they still did and that's what they were successful at. And you thought, well, you know, this is what you should be doing. Uh, and they encourage you to do that. So, 
And there's also like a sunk cost. Sort of like, I went to law school. I spent, I don't know how much people spend on law school. A lot. You know, a I went to law, a yeah. ton of money. I went to this. So I have to use it. But, you know, in economics, um, what do they say? Uh, cut your losses. Exactly. And it's like any, you know, we do this with, with relationships too. Oh, s- girls do it like crazy. They're like, I spent seven years with this guy. He better give me a baby or whatever. Um, <laughs> where's my ring? Blah, blah. Guys do that too, by the way, Jessica. Do they? Yes. Oh, I haven't met any of them. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, that's what work is. That it's a relationship, and that's what relationships are too. And the more we get invested, the, the harder it is to remove ourselves. But the thing that we need to remember is that we have a limited amount of time, and in that time, what kind of experiences do we want to be cultivating? You know, at the end of of you know, and I, I see this all the time. I work with a lot of people who are retirees. They've been through their career. And their whole expectation was once I get done with this 40-year career, then I'll have time to enjoy myself and be happy. And they're not happy. Right. Well, they've been unhappy for 40 years. Yeah. You, you can't expect that not to bleed over. And, and that's, that's an important thing too. Thank you so much, Ben. This has been a really fantastic experience. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your life story and breath work and Vedic meditation. So, Ben... How can our listeners get in touch with you? So they can find out about everything that I do on bentertianmeditation.com. That's my website, and you spell my last name, T-U-R-S-H-E-N. Uh, and you can also reach me directly. If you want to email me, my email is ben at bentertianmeditation.com. With any questions that you have about um, what we discussed on the podcast or about Vedic meditation or breath work or the personal coaching or uh, my ideas. I'm happy to share them with you. And what's, what's the location again? The spring? Where is that? So I teach Vedic meditation in our new studio. It's called the Spring Meditation. It's at 145 Avenue of Americas. That's between Spring Street and Dominic uh, in Soho. You can look up everything that we have going on at thespringmeditation.com. Great. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And for you, after our conversation with Ben, think about, are you happy? Are you having fulfilling experiences? How can you use the tools of breathwork, personal coaching, and Vedic meditation to transform your life? My name's Jessica Brodkin. I've been your host. You can find me at loveandlightservices.com and be on the lookout for all possibilities. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, and our website, allpossibilitiesshow.com. This show is produced by Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be distributed or published without the expressed written permission of the producers. Thank you for joining us. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.